hair care products, shampoo, conditioners for all ages, uh, hygiene products for all ages, barred soap for all ages, uh, fill a box, donate to items, uh, cash is always a good donation if you want, uh, for shipping counts and supplies. And as Belinda just said, uh, what's the deadline? Just keep giving until we tell you to stop. We'll give you the heads up. Um, then men's prayer breakfast will be November 1st. So gentlemen, I mean, you want to join us in breakfast, I'll try to be there this, this month. November 1st, 7 a.m., South High Side Wa High Hop, Walmart. Why we can eat breakfast at Walmart? I got Walmart brain this morning. So our men's uh, prayer breakfast, uh, first Wednesday of month, will be the first at South Side IHOP. Um, is there anything I may have missed? Anybody would like to be brought up in our... Wow, I hit them all? Thank you. This morning we're certainly privileged to have uh, Reverend Williamson in today. Uh, Ed Williamson is a gentleman I've known for many years. He helped us at uh, Lake Avenue in times of stress and need. Uh, the gentleman is a, a very loving person, very kind, very generous, and quiet. So uh, and in his sermons, you may not get yelled at, but you'll sure get the word of God, I'll guarantee. It's a privilege to have him here today. He comes from Penrose, so he's come a little distance, and uh, I hope that everybody enjoys his sermon and feels God left, get God led, and spiritually led with the day that we're going to go through. He will introduce himself and probably give him a little bit more information on him independently, but it's certainly a pleasure to introduce Reverend Ed Williamson this morning for our service. It's all yours, sir. Many of you have noticed that instead of a Bible, I have an iPad. And what I will tell you is this. If you will forgive me for having an iPad, I will forgive you for the grove of trees your Bible had to have to uh, tear down to print it. So, so there's always a trade-off, always a trade-off. Uh, concerning the Christmas shoeboxes, everybody knows about the beginning. You guys get your, your uh, shoeboxes, you fill them full of wonderful stuff, you send them in, and that's the end of the story for you. I was stationed in Korea, and uh, many of you might know me. I started out as a radar man in the Navy and uh, decided I wanted to become an Army chaplain, although it was a Navy chaplain where I was trying to go. And uh, they said, uh, no, you've been enlisted too long. In the Navy, we don't take our uh, officers who've been enlisted too long. This was in the 80s. So uh, I switched over and became an Army chaplain. And uh, I went to Korea three times, uh, went to overseas several times, served in one war zone. And uh, it was a wonderful, marvelous experience. God showed me how much he loved me. And I've been trying for the rest of my life to show how much I love him back. But concerning those Christmas shoeboxes, uh, I was stationed in Dongdujan, South Korea, at a place called Camp Casey. And Camp Casey sponsors an orphanage. I was the duty chaplain that week, and they wanted uh, someone to come out and do Christmas prayers because it was the Christmas week. And so I went to this orphanage, and uh, I didn't know anything about Christmas shoeboxes, Samaritan's Purse. I knew nothing about it. I just thought that, oh, they just don't have... Uh, bureaus or places to put their stuff. They just store everything in shoeboxes. I didn't know any better. And then uh, I was told about Samaritan's Purse. 
And these little boys and girls were opening those shoe boxes. And the sheer delight that was on their faces. And the idea that somebody they didn't know, but here was their name on an envelope, telling them, I love you. I want you to have as good a Christmas as I'm going to have. And it meant the world to these young little boys and girls. It also meant that if somebody overseas could love them that much, then this Jesus they're telling me about must love me too. And so uh, we didn't have a video, but I want to encourage you from the bottom of my heart to bless some orphans this year, some bless some people who are without. Show God's love to them. And who knows, you might have a few people entering the kingdom of heaven because of what you did. Let's turn to our Bibles today, and it's in Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 2. And as you're turning to it, uh, many of you know that there's been a lot of propaganda floating around out there. You, you know that uh, the uh, Hamas has fired a, a, a rocket that failed, and it fell into a hospital on the Gaza Strip, and it killed a lot of people. And the very first thing they did was they said, oh, it must have been the Israelis that did that. And uh, the proof was out there that it was not the Israelis, but to this day, even this morning, I'm hearing reports that people are saying that it was the Israelis that bombed that hospital. So there's lots of propaganda out there. Many of you know that I'm also, uh, I got my master's in divinity, but I'm also a history major on my, on my uh, Bachelor of Arts, and so a lot of my stuff will have historical references. And many of you have read Uncle Tom's Cabin when you were a child, and many of you know that that was one of the greatest propaganda books that was ever written. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe had never been to a plantation, had never been to the South, knew nothing about it, just wrote the, the book, and uh, they, uh, they hated uh, the South because of it, and any time the North won a battle during the Civil War, uh, they would say, okay, you've won the battle. If there's a town nearby, burn it to the ground. Because the feeling that was there between the North and the South and the belief that uh, the South was full of brutal beasts. And during the war between the states, an expedition, a chaplain of the Union Army was captured. And when he learned he was to be sent to General Nathan Bedford Forrest headquarters, he was very much distressed as he had heard so much of this fierce fighter and he expected to be executed. And when he entered the headquarters, General Forrest asked him to be seated. A little later, supper was announced, and the chaplain was asked to share the meal. When they were all seated, the chaplain uh, was shocked to hear General Forrest reverently ask him, Chaplain, would you please ask the blessing? And then they found a place for the chaplain to sleep where he would be safe. And then the next morning, General Forrest gave him an escort personally through his lines. When he got to where he was going to let him go, he told him goodbye. And he said, Parson, I would keep you here to preach for us if it wasn't for the fact that you were so much needed more by the sinners on the other side. <laughs> Our passage this morning reads, Therefore, brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and pleasing in the perfect will of God. We Christians, even though our faith is intertwined in Judaism, tend to forget the special days our Jewish brethren follow. 
On 16 September, they celebrated Rosh Hashanah, which started 10 days of confession and atonement. Then after sunset, they celebrated Yom Kippur. And according to tradition, the first Yom Kippur took place after the Israelites' exodus from Egypt and arrival at Mount Sinai, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And descending from Mount Sinai, Moses caught his people worshiping a golden calf, and he shattered the sacred tablets in anger. Because the Israelites atoned for their idolatry, God forgave their sins and offered Moses a second set of tablets. Jewish texts recount that during biblical times, Yom Kippur was the only day on which a high priest could enter the inner sanctum of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. There he would perform a series of rituals and sprinkle blood from sacrificed animals on the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments. Through this complete, complex ceremony, he made the atonement and asked for God's forgiveness on behalf of all the people of Israel. The tradition is said to have continued until the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD. And according to tradition, God judges all creatures during the 10 days of awe between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, deciding if they will live or die in the coming year. Jewish law teaches that God inscribes the names of the righteous on his book of life and condemns the wicked to death on Rosh Hashanah. People who fall between the two categories have until Yom Kippur to perform teshuva or repentance. As a result, observant Jews consider Yom Kippur and the days leading up to it as a time for prayer, good deeds, reflecting on past mistakes, and making amends with others. The Apostle Paul drew upon that tradition when he described our spiritual worship and offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. For most of us, worship is what we're doing right now. Now, you might have told from the way I'm talking that I have a son, and I was raised in Jackson, Mississippi. And during those times, uh, when, when it was a boy and Sunday came around, we got all dressed in our, you know, we all went to breakfast, excuse me, and then we got dressed in our best clothes, got in the car, and drove to our local Baptist church, which was Oak Forest Baptist Church. We sat down for church, the choir stood up, and sang our call to worship with gusto and talent. And then announcements and activity reports, a couple of hymns, some prayer requests, some testimonies, and then our sermon. We closed our sermon with a hymn of, and a benediction, and then we went out to eat somewhere. I got saved at one of those services when I was 11 years old. And for many years, when you said, define worship to me, what I told you is what I just said. It was when I was in the U.S. Navy that a, that a Navy chaplain preached that worship was not a noun. It was a verb. It's not a Sunday thing. It's an every day of your life thing. Paul says, I urge your brothers. In other words, Paul is doing more than urging. Literally, he's personally coming alongside them and appealing. He's begging, exhorting them to do something. He refers to them as brothers as he's showing them they are all members of the same family. By the way, uh, that same Navy chaplain shared something with me I'd never thought of before. He said, you do realize that the church on earth is the church in heaven. It's the same church. Different aspects, but it's the same church. And if you think about that a little minute, it kind of makes you never want to miss church. 
He refers to them as brothers as he's showing them. They're all members of the, of the brotherhood. And the root meaning is literally from the same womb, Adelphos. So when Paul says brothers, he's really showing them that they are family. They have the same parent, and that's God. This is a conversation to the believers of Rome because they will understand what Paul is getting at. Paul is asking the brothers and sisters in Rome to make a decision with their lives that will radically change the world. Now Paul says, in view of God's mercy, what Paul wants the Romans to do, consider in their hearts, not in their minds, in their hearts, because the word for mercy literally comes from the word for bowels. Yet for the people of the Old Testament and New Testament eras, your feelings and compassion came from the deepest parts of your being, which was considered your kidneys or your bowels. How much do we ever stop and consider this in our hearts? God's steadfast, constant love never ends, never stops. His mercies never end. We get to start over every day, day after day after day, year after year after year. His faithfulness and love should completely amaze us, should blow us away. And that should lead us to have the most powerful, amazing worship every day, every week. It should cause us to want to get here and worship the Lord. And that's what Paul wants us to realize. And when we realize the magnitude of God's mercy, we will come to him in worship and adoration, the kind that he truly deserves. He is the worth-ship of our service with our lives. His mercy, when we take the trouble to remember what he did for us, energizes us to do the right thing with our lives. You know, I always like to tell people when they say, you know, chaplain, and that was my title in the military. If you use the word chaplain, I will not be offended. Um, he said, they say, chaplain, you're so good. Oh, we, 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 we always catch you doing things that are, that are righteous. And one time I was, I was in my office, and I had a chair that was about to fall apart, literally fall apart. If I would picked it up and dropped it, pieces would have dropped off of it. And I kept telling the folks, uh, please replace my chair. If you give me a folding chair, it's better than this chair. And um, they said, okay, we'll get to it. We'll get to it, chaplain. So one day there was some uh, sergeants outside my office, and they were trying to go see somebody else. And I sat down in my chair and all of a sudden the chair kinked to the right, spun around a few times, and I'm trying to keep my balance, and I fell on my back. And all these sergeants are like... And I sat up. I didn't know anyone was looking at me. And I said, wow, what a ride. What a ride. And, and the sergeants ran in and picked me up, and they, they took my chair away, and they said, you can't sit in this no more, chaplain. And they brought me a folding chair. And... One of the things that a sergeant told me when he came in for marital counseling, he said, I knew you were for real because you fell on your back. You hit your head. You didn't cuss. You're supposed to cuss, chaplain. You didn't cuss. And that's when I knew you were the real thing. And I said, well, thank you for that. Let's get on to your problem, though. I didn't want to be sidetracked because he had some issues. And God was good to him, and uh, he, he's a member of our church to this day. God bless him. But when I was a sailor... I followed the Read the Bible Through in a Year program, and I came across Psalm 16, 
verses 7 through 11. And uh, it says, I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. All we have to do is find the path. But I'll tell you a little secret. That path is not the same for me and you. God does not create cookie-cutter followers, the same person doing the same thing at the same time. He adapts us to the situation in which we live in. The path of life includes divine direction, teaching, and power. These divine blessings bring us gladness of heart. The Lord directs our lives with great care and concern. The Lord teaches our hearts the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. God's power assures us that nothing can stand against us. All of this on the path of life brings gladness of heart. We're glad every day, sometimes not always, but our sinful nature likes to grumble and complain. This is why the Bible encourages us again and again to be glad, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. And that's found in Philippians 4. The Lord reminds us twice to be glad. Let others see the Lord's faithfulness by our greatness. How? The Lord is near, close to us. In my life, the path of life has gone down some pretty scary avenues. My testimony is that God was with me all the way. How many of you remember the migrant crisis in Cuba back in the 90s? Do you remember? When I was on the island of Cuba at Guantanamo Bay, we had many migrants that we were responsible to care for until our State Department could figure out what to do with them. Now, if you, if you know anything about Cuba, there is a current that flows north into the Florida current. And what these migrants were doing, they were finding any kind of frame they could find, a wooden box, maybe an old boat, and they would find or steal a shipping tarp. And they'd wrap that tarp around the box or the boat or whatever frame they found. They'd tie it down real good, and then 15 or 20 of them would pick it up and run to the beach when the opportunity presented itself. And they would jump in the surf and jump in this thing. And they'd push it off, hoping that they'd get caught by that northward current. And then it would flow. And if they hit the Florida current, and that current dropped them off on the sand and they ran ashore, they were considered dry migrants. And the State Department would come and take them, and they would, they would find a place in the United States. They'd live with their sponsor. But if, unfortunately, they didn't make it to Florida, and the Coast Guard picked them up, they brought them to Guantanamo Bay, to the great camps that we got set up. And I was assigned to Camp Alpha and Bravo. And we would talk to these migrants, and... You know, they were raised in Marxism, and I don't know how many of you have ever lived under a Marxist government or, or any of these things, but they're taught 
There is no God. They'll tell, they're, they're taught plainly that was, a, that was a tradition that was taught to you. It's not true. And they, were, they would also do things like they would take a plant in their schools and they put that plant on the windowsill of the classroom and they would water it and they would, they would make sure it got sun and that plant would flourish. And then they would say, and this is God's plant. And they'd take it to a closet and they would put it in a closet and close the door and they wouldn't water it and they wouldn't give it any sunlight. They wouldn't feed it. They wouldn't do anything. And of course the plant would die. And they would say, see, that's God's plant. And it didn't live, so there's no God. So a lot of these migrants came to Cuba. And they were told, while there were churches in Cuba, you were highly encouraged never to go. And if you wanted to be promoted in society, then you, you don't go to church. And so to our surprise, uh, they asked us, We've never been to church. We'd like to go to church. And we were in shock, you know, that, the, that these Marxists wanted to go to church. But then it shouldn't have surprised us. If you've been told you can't do something your whole life, and you get a chance to do it, you're going to want to do it. And so we set aside a tent, and we, we, we translated a lot of songs into uh, Spanish, and the first song that we did was a Keith Green song. And it's called, There is a Redeemer. And it goes like this. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, oh, for sinners slain. Thank you, O oh, my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. When I stand in glory, I will see his face, and there I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. Thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your spirit till the work on earth is done. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. And after the hymn was over, the Cubans were amazed, and they were confounded, for they had been told Christianity was the opiate of the masses, and the Cubans were foolish to believe in it. One song, with the power of God's Spirit behind it, swept away a lifetime of communist teaching in less than five minutes. They became strong believers. They wanted to follow God. They, they put on the... Uh, uh, the, the, uh, and I'm having a brain cramp, isn't it wonderful? 
uh, lack of oxygen, I think. Uh, they put on the, uh, uh, the play of The Last Supper. They did it in Spanish. They wanted to do it. And they became such ardent believers that some of them said if they got sent back to Cuba, that wouldn't be so bad because they would get to share their faith. And you know, it's no secret that we stray sometimes. You know, there are many reasons why Christians stray. And there's five that I know the best. And those are this. Number one, we think we know best. When we trust our feelings instead of God's promises, we wander away from his best. Living through the daily grind, we learn to navigate life with rushed decisions and hasty emotions that quickly put us off God's path. And when we take our eyes off the Lord, we're silently saying that we, in our power, are fully capable of plotting our course and finding our way in this world. Proud and haughty, we dismiss God's power and place our selfish hearts back into the throne of our control. And I want you to know, that's no place to live. And I know for a fact because I've lived it many times. So many times in my life, I've seen something that I thought, yeah, that was the best way. This is how I'm going to do it. And a simple five minutes with the Lord would have told me, don't do that. Step away from it. And yet, we do it. And people say, well, I can't pray for everything. And, and the answer to that is, well, why not? Why not pray for everything? Why not give it some thought? Why not trust God? The other thing is that we take God's grace for granted. You know, how many of you have heard that, that saying, cheap grace? We've accepted Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And so somebody foolishly told us that that was it. And didn't disciple us like they should have. I told you I accepted Jesus when I was 11 years old at Oak Forest Baptist Church. And that was all that was really done for me. I, I sat in church services. And I loved it when my pastor was there, Tom Hudson. But after a while, it was his time to go. And another man took his place. And he was equally as gifted as Tom. But it wasn't the same. And so I found myself drifting I find myself, oh yeah, here's a job that I can get a lot of money if I work on Sunday. I should do that. It's that old saying about have you found yourself complacent and restless in your faith during the seasons of your life? If so, you wouldn't be the first. And you won't be the last. When we play church or go through the motions of our Christianity, our eyes become unfocused and our senses dull to the miracle of God's grace. How easy is it to forget Jesus' sacrifice and life-changing atonement at the cross when our eyes and hearts aren't fixed on Him? Getting comfortable in our salvation causes a restless stirring deep in our soul, and suddenly we find ourselves aimlessly wandering away from the Lord's best. I took that job on Sunday as a security guard, and not a whole lot happens in Jackson, Mississippi on a Sunday afternoon. Everybody's in church. Or going to a football game or baseball. And I started to see, I started to feel convicted that this wasn't the place for me. That I needed to walk away from this. And I prayed to God. I said, God, I messed up. I know you forgave me, but God, I messed up. 
and I need to walk away from this job and I need to do something else. And God answered that prayer in a mighty way. And I did walk back on the path where I belonged. Aimlessly wandering in our Christian faith is no place for any of us to be. And when we do it, terrible things are bound to happen. The other thing that makes us stray is when we are afraid. When we are afraid. You know, when Hamas struck Israel, they did some terrible things. And I'm not going to go into it on this sermon. I'm not, I refuse to do it. But it, it brought back something. You know our southern and northern border is basically open. Anyone can come in. And it started occurring to people that if Hamas did this in Israel, what would they do if they could freely walk through our borders and come into this country? And so now people are starting to look back on all that and look, reviewing all the video footage, trying to find if maybe Hamas has come into this country. And the State Department has said, certainly they have. Certainly they have. And it's easy to be afraid thinking about that. But when the storms of life surround us, if we are not rooted and planted in faith, we can be quickly blown off God's course and cling to the delusion that our fear is more significant than our Almighty Father. I don't know if we're going to have another terrorist event in this country. I pray that we don't, and I pray that you pray that we don't. I hope that that's part of your, as you, as you bow your knee in, in prayer, as you get up in the morning or you close your eyes at, at night or both, that you pray for this country. Because we're going through a lot. And there's all kind of things that are happening to our Christian faith. All kind of desire for people to take it away from us. I look in Canada. I have friends in Canada. And I remember they were going to close down a pastor's church service on Easter Sunday. And as they came to his door, he met them at the back door. And he said, you're a bunch of Nazis. You're a bunch of Nazis. You want to close a church service. You Nazis. And when he said that to them, they were all convicted. And they backed away. All the, all the cell phones were up recording the whole thing. Now, he got in trouble for it later. But his steadfast desire to have that Easter service and that no one was going to take him away from that, that he was going to serve God, served him well. He's a bit of an embarrassment to Canada because they would love to go Marxist. But guys like that pastor who are not afraid to show their faith, will serve them well in the end. But we are afraid. We're blinded by fear. We doubt God's power and capability to step in and make a way for our situation. Sometimes God's best includes taking a leap of faith. But if we're paralyzed by fear, we may miss an opportunity that God has for us because we're afraid to take a chance. We were in South America. And uh, we were told that there was this, you know, that there were a lot of communists in this little town that we were in. And we were told to stay on a certain area of the city, stay away from it, because you probably wouldn't come out of there alive. They made us wear our military uniforms, our sailor uniforms. But we were also told about this wonderful steakhouse that was on top of a hill. 
And as you can tell by my belly, I am not going to avoid a good steakhouse. And a friend of mine went with me up there, and it was magnificent. They had an open pit in the center of this restaurant, and they were grilling steaks and ribs and pork chops and sausage and all this stuff, and, and it was all you could eat. And, uh, oh, it was just wonderful. And so we were, just, we were just eating, and finally we got done, and it was pitch black dark out there. And uh, unfortunately, they didn't believe in lights of the, of the streets. And so uh, we walked out of that restaurant, and it was pitch black dark. And the nearest lights were in this part of the city that we couldn't tell. But we knew as we got into that part of the city, we weren't supposed to be there. That was the place where the communists would attack you and kidnap you or kill you, and you're not supposed to go there. And we were breaking a direct order not to go there by our commanding officer. And so me and Rick are wandering, and it was real hard not to hold hands because we were scared. We were so scared. And we were walking these lights, and there were people looking at us, and we're in our sailor uniform. Think Cracker Jack box. We're in our, and we're walking. We're obvious. We're obvious. And we're both scared. I, let me say that again. I can't not give you the level of terror we were all feeling in that South American town. And uh, finally... Uh, we, we were probably walking, we thought we were walking away from the center of that part of the town, but chances are we were probably walking right through it, to the center of it. And uh, getting more and more scared, and more and more people were, were looking at us, and uh, we, we were just to the point where we almost wanted to sit down, we were just so scared. And I was praying the whole time, I said, oh Lord, please help us, please help us. And uh, finally, when it looked like all bad things were going to happen to us, my friend turned to me, and he knew I was a Christian, turned to me and said, Ed, I hope you've been praying. And I said, I've been praying the whole time. And as that last syllable of time came out of my mouth, the power failed in that part of town. All the lights went out. It was dark, so dark you couldn't see anything. And all I could see were the lights the ship had rigged to guide us home so we'd know which ship to go back to. And through all that, that light of, of horror and terror and, and death and kidnapping, that went out, and the only light we saw was our ship. And we knew the direct path to go to it. And we were like one of the people that wanted to kill us. We were just another body moving in the shadows. We walked through that part of town <coughs> unmolested. And we came out on the other side, and we did what all sailors do after they escape something like that. We turned to the other and said, we probably should never mention this ever again. <laughs> and we got back to our ship, and Rick saw Christianity in motion that night. And he did eventually become a child of God. But I'll tell you this, we're afraid. And after that incident, it taught me a lesson that I'll never forget. God is there with you. Acknowledge him. Pray to him. He will find a way. Sometimes we're not afraid. Sometimes we're merely distracted. Just as a child is quick to chase after a flooding butterfly, Christians get distracted in this busy and rushed life. Distracted by responsibilities, obligations, and life demands. Living without our eyes focused solely on the Lord can keep us from experiencing the best that God has planned for us. 
We must learn to guard our hearts and pray for blinders as we hope to focus solely on God's face and His perfect plan. When I was in Iraq, one of my first sermons I preached at our chapel was this. I said, you don't know how lucky you are to be in Iraq. And they looked at me and said, no television, no Burger King, no McDonald's, no uh, uh, place to play video games. All this is gone. What do you mean you're lucky to be here? And I said, you're fortunate to be here because all the distractions in your life have been taken away. And now you can focus solely on God if you want to. And you're going to see miracles happen in our time in Iraq if you focus on God and you want to. And I had a, a little piece of paper written at that sermon. And in, in uh, Hebrew and Arabic it said, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. And I gave it out to every one of my churchgoers that were in my chapel that day. And it's amazing how many people uh, out there in my battalion came to me and said, can I have one of those cards? I need to be reminded too. When things are at their worst, I can pull out that card and say, oh yeah, this too shall pass. One of the things that we don't do very well is we have to wait. Waiting is agonizing if we let our circumstances overshadow God's truth and we become paralyzed by our situations. If we focus instead on God's faithfulness and wholeheartedly seek His wisdom, waiting can be a time of growth and refinement. It's a blessing to watch His plan unfold after waiting on Him to move. Even when the wait seems long and lonely, we have to learn to bind our wandering hearts to the wisdom and will of the Lord and trust Him with our lives and our situations. When tragedies strike or situations don't go as planned, some people quickly blame God and use that as an excuse to walk away from Him. No matter what the reason for straying from God or fighting your faith, the beauty of God is that He is an amazing Father. It is the fact that He continues to love you anyway he still watches over you and ensures your safety. And when you're ready to come back, He welcomes you with open arms. When I was in the Philippines, uh, there was a shirt that I loved. It was, it was in the streets of the market. And it had a picture of an ox. And it had a city that was on the ox's shoulder. And it says... If you are far from God this day, who moved? Who moved away? As we close our service today, I would ask our deacons to come forward as we sing our hymn of invitation. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure you'll tell us. <laughs> 